So PG&E is now in the bankruptcy court, and um, that's always a place where there's distributional conflict. And so I imagine we have, you know, holders of equity, the shareholders, the bondholders, the rate payers, uh, the employees or labor contracts and uh, contracts with generators. Who am I missing in in this fight? Um, well, um, I would make one subtraction and one addition. Okay. Ratepayers are not really represented <laughs> in the bankruptcy. The PUC is a party to the bankruptcy and has been given party status by the court. Uh, luckily, Judge Montali, who is the bankruptcy judge, he was the bankruptcy judge in the first PG&E bankruptcy. So, so Montali has a lot of expertise in sort of dealing with uh, utility bankruptcy and, and with this kind of interaction between state regulation and law and the normal operation of a bankruptcy court. That's great. So he gave, he very early on said the PUC was a party and could have full party status. The, on the other hand, um, you know, real quick, do you see the PUC as representing ratepayer interests or? No, I don't. Um, and I don't think ratepayers advocates would agree that the PUC represents ratepayer interests. That's one of the interests the PUC represents, but it, it represents the state. Right. And the state is concerned, of course, about ratepayers and ratepayer impacts, but it's concerned about lots of things. Right. Um, the the other party I think that you didn't mention are the wildfire victims, right. and they're a really important player in this um, because their settlements with PG&E are going to determine – you know, how much money is needed to reorganize the company. What's the stat? Can you give us sort of a status report on this process? Yeah, well, so there's sort of two things. There, there, are two, there are two really important dynamics. One is getting to settlement with the victims so that everybody knows what numbers they need to plug into a reorganization plan. Like, you know, it, it's been a challenge to come forward with a plan for any of the parties because the, it's just unclear how much money is required and that that's determinative for, you know, is there money enough to maintain existing equity ownership of a company or do one of the other parties, does one of the other parties end up taking over the company? Um, can existing equity raise funds, uh, you know, make, make a new equity offering, um, you know, basically inject new capital in the company or do they need some other means um, to, to reorganize? The the other big fight so 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 settlement is an issue. There are three main parties in the settlement, two or in the in the sort of class of victims, two of which have settled. One is local governments. They settled for a billion dollars um, back in I think June. Uh, more recently, the subrogation parties. So these are uh, basically the ins uh, insurance companies and. Entities that bought claims from insurance companies settled for $11 billion. That brings the total settlement to $12 billion. Left left out there are victims' claims that are you know direct claims on PG&E from fire victims. There's a lot of discussion about the potential value of those claims. Um, I think many think that settlement value will be somewhere close to what the subrogation parties settled for, and that would bring the total value of the claims to uh, 20, uh, $23 billion, $24 billion. Um, there's a second, a second sort of victim's question, which is 
whether PG&E is liable for a fire that CAL FIRE said they weren't liable for or not. The victims there have claims that could be worth somewhere between $8 and $15 billion. So if that turns out to be a, a fire for which PG&E is liable, you know, that also really changes the economics of reorganization. And then the last question is um, this long fight that's been going on between the, the entities that own bonds uh, and the entities that own equity in the company. And the bondholders have been trying to get their plan into court to reorganize the company, which would basically wipe out the equity. Uh, and the equity has been obviously resisting that. Um, and it's, it's, it's a mess. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is this is an incredibly complex bankruptcy. It's not just in one court. By last count, I think it's in seven different – there's seven different litigations ongoing. You know, there's a dispute about FERC authority um, uh, to oversee contracts. Um, yeah, can we talk about that? Because that got a lot of coverage in the sort of green energy world. Sure. Uh, because PG&E signed a lot – has a lot of power purchase agreements with renewable generators and others as well. And since costs in that world have declined so precipitously, you know, those some of those prices in those contracts might not be considered competitive today, but they're, they're firm commitments. And um, I guess a question arises in bankruptcy whether those commitments have to be met. Uh, and FERC wanted to be heard on that. Can you just give everybody an update on that? Issue. Yeah, well, FERC kind of preempted the, the the renewable parties went into court as soon as the bankruptcy filing. They went to FERC as soon as the bankruptcy filing occurred and said, you know, contracts once signed and um, are kind of sacrosanct. And FERC is very reluctant to um, allow uh, a party to abrogate those contracts if circumstances turn out unfavorably. FERC authority over that issue is something that FERC, you know, values. When the renewable parties went to FERC, FERC quickly issued an opinion that said that FERC had kind of joint authority with the bankruptcy court to review these contracts. Um, the bankruptcy court, Judge Montali, disagreed. Bankruptcy courts kind of think that, you know, behave as if bankruptcy law is, you know, transcends all other law. They're, you know, they tend to um, not be terribly respectful of uh, ideas like kind of joint jurisdiction over a, over a, uh, a contract. And, and so Judge Matali immediately issued an opinion that said, no, um, this is at PG&E's behest. You know, the bankruptcy court's decisions control. The funny thing here is that um, it's not clear how much turns on this, because if a company rejects a contract in bankruptcy, then the unpaid, the unpaid, you know, um, uh, yeah, obligations under the contract become claims in the bankruptcy. Right. If PG&E intends to pay claimants 100 cents on the dollar, then there's no money to be saved by rejecting one of these PPAs. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, even more than that, if PG&E wants to stay in the good graces of the state of California, there's no, and, and, they, and, and PG&E definitely wants that and wants a lot of things from the state of California in terms of help in getting out of bankruptcy. Um, there's no real benefit to rejecting these contracts. There's a negative benefit actually. And so I think it's pretty unlikely that um, 
many, let alone all, of these contracts are going to be uh, renegotiated in bankruptcy. So this is kind of a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of posturing around this issue, but I'm not sure how much substance there really is. Okay. Uh, at the outset of all this, there was a lot of speculation about PG&E being broken up into pieces and sold off, or more recently, I think there's been some talk about San Francisco forming a municipal utility uh, and taking or condemning PG&E facilities there. Um, what's your sense of what might emerge from all this after the process is over? Is, there, is it too early to tell, or do you have any intuitions about that? My assessment at this point, and, and I think I would agree with the, with your you know, question about where we are in the process, I, I think it may be too soon to tell. Um, and, but my assessment at this point is that we're likely to see an entity emerge from bankruptcy that looks a lot like PG&E. Mm -hmm. I'm not clear whether the existing equity will own that entity or not. I think that's impossible to tell. Uh, but we're not likely to see a breakup. Um, you know, there have been some recent proposals in particular from the city of San Francisco to purchase the, you know, basically municipalize within the city and county of San Francisco, municipalize their assets uh, or, or PG&E's assets within the city. I think many people, as they thought through that idea, um, realized pretty quickly that this was a way for San Francisco to basically isolate it, which is an incredibly wealthy community in the context of Northern California, to isolate itself from wildfire risk, kind of push that risk onto other customers, and kind of avoid the hard problems of kind of island itself from the challenges facing the energy system, and maybe push also some of the costs onto others. And there's a lot of reluctance to do that. Um, in particular, you know, the, the communities that neighbor San Francisco that provide a lot of the housing that enables San Francisco to build tower, office towers for all of the jobs um, have high wildfire risks. And they're, you know, they sort of wonder why it should be that, you know, San Francisco should get to, you know, avoid being a part of the solution and, and, and paying in, in a sense that SF's customers should, shouldn't have to pay for the solutions that are going to be required. Yeah, to the extent that it seems, as we've been talking, that a lot of the people bearing the brunt of all this, at least so far, are inland, and those communities are overall less well-off than the coastal communities. It does seem like the impacts are hitting the most vulnerable people. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and the impacts, you know, for the most vulnerable are kind of multifaceted, but the, 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 you know, because of the way electricity rates work and the, and the kind of glacial pace of electricity regulation, they haven't really hit in terms of rates yet. Um, where we're seeing the biggest impacts so far are in terms of the costs of homeowners insurance mm -hmm. and where communities are really struggling to, and, and really just coming to, gra to, to grips with, the impacts of all of this on the costs of owning a home in in high risk areas, and that's you know that's that takes a while to play out because of the structure of homeowners insurance, where you you know it's, it's renewed on an annual basis, 
and the reset that's happening in homeowners insurance is kind of propagating through communities over the period of a year as a result, as, as policies expire and are renewed, or in many cases are not renewed by companies and homeowners have to go out and seek new insurance from a new provider. Yeah, and not just not just homeowners, but businesses as well. There was the piece in the yes. yesterday, which I think you were quoted, um, about the tree trimming businesses who can't get insurance because of the risk of liability being shoved onto them. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, it's a it's quite a cascade or accretion of problems uh, in, in these communities that are, you know, some of which were created because people couldn't afford to live on the coasts. Yeah, well, you know, a common strategy for uh, coastal residents in California has been when they retire to sell their home on the coast and move inland and take the equity that's that's been created in their home and use it to fund their retirement and purchase a much lower cost home like in the Sierra where it's beautiful, right? It's a wonderful place to live um, and it's much cheaper. And so, you know, that that has created a set of, and, and that's, it's also why the communities that are on the Sierra slope have high, relatively high concentrations of senior citizens who are the most vulnerable in a fire, right? If you look at who dies in a wildfire, it's the people that don't get out of bed fast enough and, and move a little slower, maybe can't run quite as fast. I mean, it really does come down to that. Yeah. And those are, you know, by and large, older people, older people have moved into communities like Paradise because they're, they're wonderful places to live and they're affordable relative to the coast. And so it's, um, it's, a, it's a real problem. Yeah. And, and it, it interacts, you know, and we saw this in the latest legislative session very strongly with the crisis that California is facing with respect to housing. Because there's real concern about imposing additional cost or, or just flat out restriction on new housing in California, because it's such an expensive place to live. There are not enough places for people to live affordably, and 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 the reality is that because of the economics of building in California, the cheapest places to live or to build new new housing, tend you know tend to be these more rural areas in the wild. Outland urban interface. Yeah. So last question, I want to we come back to something we mentioned earlier, which is the interest of rate payers. Um, well, I, I guess when this bankruptcy process sorts itself out, I assume shareholders will be eating some of this cost. And I, my question is, what do you think, are, are rate payers going to take a hit uh, as part of this? Or will some of this be socialized through the, through through the entire uh, citizenry of California and taxes, or uh, should ratepayers be worried? I think ratepayers should be extremely worried. Yeah. Um, one indi- one indicator of this is the transmission rate case that was just concluded by Southern California Edison at FERC. So FERC works more efficiently, I should, say, or it has, has a simpler job. But you know, the transmission rate cases are done once a year, and the, and so there's kind of they're, they're on a more rapid clip than uh, and so they indicate impacts faster. Mm-hmm. And Edison, you know, which has not had as severe a problem as PG&E, was just awarded a 12.5% cost of capital in its rate case. Mm-hmm. Now listeners may not realize how extreme that is, 
it's de that's a that's a major reduction from their initial ask, which was 16%. My bet would be that that is by far the highest in the country, and that's going to directly impact rates. Now, PG&E and Sempra, the San Diego utility, are asking for similar numbers from FERC. I think the Edison decision indicates that they're likely to get them, and they're asking for similar numbers in the uh, from the California Public Utility Commission for the state-regulated assets. We'll have to see what happens in the PUC, but you know, there's just no question that the risk of owning a utility in California is higher than the risk of owning a utility somewhere else, and and shareholders are going to expect a higher return. That's going to mean ratepayers pay more. In addition. PG&E is in the process of spending an enormous amount of money, as, are Edison, as is Edison, um, on kind of catching up, right, hardening their grid, doing a lot of enhanced vegetation management. So, so they're spending more money, and they're going to expect a higher return on investments they make in their system. And the combination is going to impact ratepayers, I think, quite significantly, independent of any costs associated with the bankruptcy which are likely to be substantial in terms of expenses. You know, typically, bankruptcy costs a few percentage points of the value of the company, just the expenses of all the lawyers. And ratepayers are going to have to pay for a significant slice of that. So um, I think there's just no scenario in which rates don't go up in the short term and probably also for at least the medium term. Uh, you know, the short term because of the bankruptcy costs, the medium term because of the higher cost of capital associated with the risk of fire, and the large-scale investment programs that are being implemented by the utilities to to mitigate risk. Now, the the question I have about these investment programs is how effective they're going to be. And we're not making that comparison between what would be taxpayer-funded risk mitigation investment versus ratepayer-funded risk mitigation investment. And, and there's no evaluation of the effectiveness of either tool. It sounds like the, the, the incentives are misaligned or there's sort of a regulatory silos that are preventing people from looking comparatively the way you suggest. Both and. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Uh, uh, is there anything I forgot to ask about that you think is worth mentioning? Um, you know, the one, the one kind of enormous risk for the bankruptcy and for ratepayers and for victims that we didn't talk about is if there were a fire that occurs this fire season. Um, so expenses that a company incurs during the pendency of a bankruptcy are, call, are, are basically get paid first, and they get paid before anyone else gets any money. If there were a large fire this year, right, during the pendency of the bankruptcy, and that's entirely possible, like I said, we're just getting into fire season, that would basically throw all of the calculations that everyone has made out the window. Yeah, sounds like a frightening prospect. Yeah, I imagine it's keeping the management of PG&E up at night. Yeah. Well, thanks uh, again for sitting down to talk with us, Michael. So it's always fun, David. You ask good questions. So. Yeah.